All right, welcome back. Welcome back. We're going to get started. I can smell the food downstairs, and so that means you probably can too. And so, uh, so I want to make sure we, uh, we get started. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 27. And we're going to try to get to verse 38 today. I don't know if we will or can or not, uh, but we're going to do our best. We covered a big chunk last week, uh, starting in verse 14 down to 26. This morning we're going to try to do 27 to 38, and you'll see as we get started, it is a long section of Scripture. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read together Mark 8, 27 through 38. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the word made flesh. And we thank you that in the beginning, you were the word. We thank you that God spoke all things into existence from nothing through the word and through the power of his word. And so we understand this morning that a word from you can change anything. Uh, that one small word that you speak to us, uh, that it can change everything. And so we praise you for that uh, understanding. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you that you send it out for a purpose and it accomplishes that purpose according to Isaiah. And we thank you that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to divide and to penetrate uh, even the difference between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And so we thank you for its surgical precision in our lives today. I just pray that we would have ears to hear. Many people around the room are already stopping up their ears and are already unwilling to hear from your word. It's my prayer that through love and your patience and grace, through your people and the example of your love for them, that they might take a chance to listen carefully today. We thank you primarily that your Holy Spirit is our teacher that you have given each one of us a mind <clears throat> that we may test your word, that we may challenge your word and ask questions about your word and seek your word and study your word, that no one here has to take my word for it, but that they can go back and like the Bereans, check the scriptures to make everything, make sure that everything that is being said is true. So we thank you that in all those ways you are not intimidated by our questions about your word. It's our prayer that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and that you would use your word to challenge us and to change us and to make us whole. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Let's read the text together. Verses 27 through 38. Through the Holy Spirit, Mark records this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Well, sandwiched between the passages that we just read and the section that we covered last week is the most bizarre healing, in my opinion, in the Gospels. <laughs> um, verses 14 through 21, the disciples forget to bring bread and in this sort of comedic situation in the boat. They just left Bethsaida where Jesus broke seven loaves of bread and it multiplied to feed thousands. And so the disciples in some weird way say, well, we forgot to bring bread and Jesus is upset with us because we forgot to bring bread. And, and in this moment, uh, he's rebuking them. And he's cautioning them to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And so they're talking about, well, he's saying this because we don't have bread. And Jesus looks at them, he says, don't you understand? Don't you perceive? Don't you get it? Having eyes to see, are you still not seeing? Are your hearts hardened? Having ears, do you not hear? I'm not talking about bread. I just broke bread for thousands of people. This isn't about bread. This is about the leaven of the Pharisees. But he uses that little section, don't you see, don't you perceive, don't you understand? Now fast forward to the section that we just Read verses 27 to 38. The disciples see him in one way. They, dis, they, they see him in one way, but they don't yet see him in another. This is the first of three cross predictions. The first of three in the book of Mark. Jesus is going to predict and state very clearly what's about to happen in the next maybe nine months or so. He's about two and a half years into his ministry, and he's going to tell them very clearly, this is going to happen. We're, we're shifting the ministry. The disciples knew him one way, and he's revealing himself in another way. Now, that's the section before. Don't you see? Don't you perceive? Don't you understand? And now the second section that we just read, he's challenging them with their half perception of him now sandwiched in between that is this weird healing <laughs> between this blind man jesus goes into this community they bring to him a blind man of bethsaida um, jesus they begged him to touch him jesus takes the blind man he calls his disciples they go outside the city jesus spits on the guy's eyes 
He touches him, he sighs, and he asks the guy, do you see anything? Verse 24, he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Why couldn't Jesus heal the guy right the first time, right? What's wrong with Jesus, right? He failed in his first healing. Well, this is on purpose, right? This is, Jesus didn't botch the first one. He wasn't like your optometrist who makes you flip between the two things and is this good and is that good? He wasn't sort of doing that to this guy's eyes, trying to dial in his sort of healing prescription. It wasn't that at all. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit, through Peter, who is likely writing about this through Mark, there's a reason why all of this is arranged the way it is. It didn't have to be arranged this way. In John 21, John confesses, hey, there are a lot of things that Jesus did. And were they all to be written down? I don't even think that all the world's volumes could contain all the things he did and say. But these things are written so that you may believe. So we understand that the gospel writers, as they sat down, led by the Holy Spirit to write their account, intentionally stopped and said, I can't talk about that, and I don't have freedom to go into this whole trip or this whole experience or all these teachings. They chose, as the Spirit led them, First Peter says that as the, the Spirit carried them along, and that sort of Greek word is the a sail being filled with wind and being carried along. So as, this, as their minds were, their sails of their minds were up, the Spirit was filling that and showing them what to write and what not to write. So we know that this is here on purpose and it's been preserved for us in this order. We even know that some of the common language here, the, the Greek words in, in the first section, 14 through 21, Jesus is asking them, do you see, do you understand, do you perceive? The same words that he's asking this blind man, do you see, do you perceive? And then the same thing in this revelation of who he is, they don't see. Have you ever known someone one way, and then you see them or meet them years later, and they're just different? <laughs> uh, this past week, I had a chance to drive to... Um, Oklahoma City area to see my daughter Kennedy who's at school she's been there for six weeks and uh, and so we I, we miss her and it's not the same around our table there's an empty seat you know and it's just this really hard experience as parents many of you know that experience and so we were I was able to go and it was really you know I flew to Dallas for a conference and when I thought that this could work I changed my flight, made it really, really early in the morning, woke up at 3 o'clock Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, and made sure I got to the airport, made sure I got right off, made sure I got right to the rental car place. And though I have a lot of friends in Dallas and the conference didn't start for 24 more hours, uh, I took an extra day, paid my own gas, sort of paid my own way, and you know, made the three-and-a-half-hour drive through um, Oklahoma to Shawnee waited for her outside of her class and and just as soon as she came out we were able to spend the next four or five hours together it was so worth it it was so good to see her and uh, and so good um, to be able to reconnect with her Uh, later that night after she had rehearsal and all that I was going to make my way to visit a friend and stay with him on my way back to Dallas Uh, and so I drove over to his house now this guy that I stayed with 
uh, Jay Wendorf, one of my best friends of all time. Uh, the years that I knew him, when I had first become a believer, there was a period in my life where I lived, um, I don't say homeless, but I just didn't have a place to sleep for maybe six weeks. Um, it's not the same as being homeless. I just had some difficulty in my family life, and Jay's family took me in um, when they found out what was happening. And during that time, they provided for me, they uh, sheltered me, they provided food, and I, it was like being welcomed in as one of their sons. It was beautiful. And Jay and I stayed in the same room, and we had a habit of getting on our knees every night together and just seeking the Lord together. And as a new believer, um, having gone from this difficult home life and difficult situation into this other situation with Jay, the Lord just sort of knit our hearts together. And we walked with Jesus for this sort of year or so together, and our relationship was amazing. Um, Matter of fact, at the end of that, when I went to college, he gave me a painting of Luke 24, Uh, Do you remember that passage where it says, didn't our hearts burn with us along the way as we walked with the Lord? He gave me a painting with that picture sort of stenciled on there to sort of memorialize this period of time that we had sort of lived together and that we had walked with the Lord together, that our hearts sort of burned as we sought Jesus together and walked in the sort of formative time of our life. Jay was different in high school than Jay is now. Um, Jay and I are fantastic friends, and he still has the same red-hot sort of passion for Jesus. And even when I was with him Wednesday night, we, were, uh, we put on worship music, and we prayed. We prayed for our kids. We prayed for our families. We prayed for our, fam- for our wives. For our, we prayed for our ministries. We, prayed, we just sat and worshiped. And I, I, I was nodding off because I'd been up since 2 o'clock in the morning, and it's now midnight, and I'm just sort of done. But... But Jay was somebody totally different in high school. He was silly. He was funny. He was a clown. Um, Jay is not who he was in the second part of his life than he was in the first part of his life. This sort of passion for Jesus that intersected when I met Jesus was something that God was building in him. And who he is today is an elder and... um, a passionate follower of Jesus, but there is nothing clowny about Jay anymore. I liked Jay, clown Jay. I liked funny Jay. I liked um, Jay, but a lot of people liked him. But listen, Jay in his later years doesn't have the same group of friends. Jay in his later years is somebody who feasts on the word, who feasts on his relationship with Jesus, who is consumed with a passion to share the gospel, consumed to be a a faithful physical therapist and an elder in his church. And because of that, people don't like him. He was still a Christian this whole time. Now, what does this long illustration mean? There was a point at which Jesus's disciples really liked who he was. I mean, big crowds are coming. Thousands of people are flocking to see Jesus and with words he is teaching them and with his hands he is healing them. And in miraculous ways he's breaking off bread and feeding them and he's taking care of them and and everybody loves that Jesus. Now Mark has been very careful from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark to trace this line of enemies that are also accruing to Jesus. But at this point they're just a sideshow. 
right? At this point, they're not a prominent figure in Jesus's life. He dismisses them in, in the few verses here before. They come and they demand a sign from heaven in verses 11 through 13. And Jesus sighs and says, there's not going to be any um, sign from heaven. He sighs and he walks away from them. The enemies of Jesus at this point are sort of a sub-character not as major as the crowds and as the disciples and as Jesus's ministry. Everything is good is basically what I'm trying to say at this point in Jesus's life and ministry. If you were one of his followers, you would want to sort of ride this train as long as it's going up until this point. You would like the crowds. You would like the prominence. You would like people saying that guy used to be a tax collector And now he is one of Jesus's trusted 12. You would have liked being able to travel. You would have liked just to be able to sit at the feet of God himself, right? In human form. You would love to be able to, the the peace, the joy, the reconciliation, the forgiveness, the way, the love that you have for Jesus. All of these things are all combining and with popular culture approval. Do you understand that everybody loved Jesus at this point and his disciples wanted to be with him? And so that's why in these sort of five trips that Jesus takes in this section, five trips out of state, five sort of road trips that he's just gathering with his disciples. We know that it's not just 12. There are lots of women with him. Uh, There are lots of other disciples. At one point he sends out 72 So I want you to think not in terms of just a handful of guys by a campfire. That's unrealistic. There are maybe a hundred people following Jesus everywhere he goes. Maybe more. Because in John 6, sort of similar place, he thins out that crowd by what he's about to say. There are hundreds of people maybe following Jesus. And he's taking them on these road trips so they can spend time together and get away from the crowd ministry. He wants them to understand what's coming next. And he's doing it through these five trips. This road trip after they heal the blind man, is to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is way north. Let me just draw a visual map. This is the Sea of Galilee. For you, uh, that would mean that the Mediterranean Sea is over here, Sea of Galilee. Below that is the Dead Sea, okay? Sea of Galilee, Mediterranean. There's those two seas. This is the rest of Israel. Way up here north is Caesarea Philippi. And it was a large city, Um, named after one of the Caesars by one of Herod's four sons. Okay, Four sons of Herod. Herod the Great was the builder and the butcher. He's the one who had all the babies executed when Jesus was born. He had four kids. They each wanted to be the king over Israel, but their kingdom was divided into four parts. Herod, the one who's ruling right by, who kills John the Baptist, he marries Herodias, the wife of one of his other brothers. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is ruled by one of those other four brothers. And at this place, a large city is built near this cave where uh, it goes underground, subterranean, and it's got a spring. And this was a place of pagan worship for years and years, thousands of years, hundreds of years maybe. But where they would dedicate and sacrifice children and offerings to this god Pan. Jesus is taking them up there. And on the mountain near there, in chapter 9, Jesus will be transfigured. But he's taking his disciples because he wants them to understand who he is, 
and what's coming next. That's the purpose of these sort of road trips is isolating his disciples from the crowd so that he can reveal to them who he is and what's coming next. And what he reveals, let's go back and look at verse 27. He's going to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? He wants to know, what's the opinion about me? John the Baptist has already been um, beheaded. Some people say that you're John the Baptist sort of reincarnated or have his spirit sort of like Elijah. His spirit was given to Elisha, right? Somebody say that's what they say about you. Other people say that you're Elijah himself. Other people say that you're one of the prophets. Jesus doesn't necessarily mind what the crowds think about him. His real question in verse 29, who do you say that I am? Peter says you are the Christ. He sees Jesus clearly, but only halfway. You see that? Because in just a second, what's Peter do? He doesn't see him all the way. He sees Jesus like a tree walking around, right? Like this blind guy. He half sees him. He doesn't partially, he doesn't see him for who he is. He likes Jesus the healer, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the bread breaker, you know, Jesus the great teacher, um, Jesus the one who throws over the money changers tables, Jesus who makes a whip. I mean, that's the guy, the one who tells Peter, get out of the boat and walk on water. Peter really likes that Jesus. And we like that Jesus. But we don't like the Jesus that he's about to reveal himself to be. But Peter made this clear, half-perceptive insight into Jesus. And for the moment, it's exactly right. You're the Christ. Christos is not Jesus' name, okay? On his birth certificate, it didn't say Yeshua HaMashiach, right? It didn't, it, Mashiach is a Hebrew word for Messiah. Christos is the Greek translation of the word Messiah. Christos is a title. Christ, meaning Savior. Messiah, meaning Savior. So Jesus Christ is not his name. His name is Yeshua. His title is Christ, This conjured up for them everything they know about Christ. And what do they know about Christ? Well, they had the Old Covenant, 22 books for for Israel's Bible. Their Bible consisted of these 22 books. We divided them into 39 books of the Old Testament. But they had these 22 books. And all through there, there was a line of Messianic figures. And they did things, right? They suffered, they struggled, they uh, were persecuted, uh, the prophets predicted, they showed them what his life would be like, and they showed him in ways that he would save. You think about a pre-Christ figure like Joseph, who suffers, he goes down into Egypt and he suffers as a slave, and he's humbling himself, he's a slave to Potiphar, and then he's unjustly accused And he goes to prison and he suffers in the lowest pit of this prison. And it's there in this lowest pit of the prison that that God begins to use him. And he becomes the redeemer of God's people. Well, who does Joseph point to? They had these examples so that when Peter says you're the Christ, that should have triggered a line of thinking that says the Christ has to suffer and he has to be punished and he has to become a redeemer through this sort of path 
to humility. So verse 31, Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and uh, suffer many things and be rejected. That should not have been a surprise to them. But he says it plainly. He tells them he's going to um, be rejected and that the chief priests and the scribes are going to kill him and that after three days he's going to rise again. Now this could be within six to nine, maybe a year out. This is just very close this is about to happen. And he said this plainly, verse 32. And Peter takes him aside and he begins to rebuke him. Peter wants nothing of this kind of Christ. He doesn't want any, anything to do with this sort of Jesus. And he's trying to tell Jesus, this doesn't have to be you. You don't have to go this route. We can keep riding the wave that we're on. The train is good and it's going in good places. There are suffering people all around the world. We, don't ha- we can go every... We- Peter, I'm putting words in his mouth, but, but Peter doesn't want this to stop. He tells Jesus, you're not going to do this. This is the reason Jesus came, though. And so he grabs Peter. He faces him to the rest of the disciples, maybe 100 or so, at least 72 to 12, at least 12. But we know all the disciples are there. He uses the word disciples, not apostles. And that's a key that there are more. He rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Don't we do that with Jesus? Don't we sort of take Jesus and in our mind we have the things of man in mind. So we want Jesus to be applied in our way, not in his way. And a few examples of this in our culture and in our sort of American dream Christianity We want sort of the best houses and the best cars and the best clothes and the best vacations and the best experiences. And and so we want Jesus, we want to take Jesus and we want to make him apply to our situation. Elevate me, elevate my status, elevate my wardrobe, elevate, upgrade my car, upgrade my house, upgrade my family, upgrade my vacation. We sort of want, that's just one simple, surfacey way in which we take Jesus and we apply him to our experience. And Jesus, in the same way that he might grab Peter, <clears throat> rebuke him, and say, get behind me, you're not setting your th- mind on the things of <clears throat> God, but on the things of man, <clears throat> might say to us, I'm going to lead you in a path <clears throat> of suffering and difficulty and pain. And it's going to be for my glory and it's going to be for my majesty, and it's going to be difficult. He says as much in verse 34. Now he's going to call a crowd to him, along with the disciples and the apostles. Verse 34. And he says to me, if anyone is going to follow me, if somebody's going to come after me, if somebody's going to become a Christian, if you're going to be a Christ follower, those are all the definitions, those are all the words we use to what he's saying. Christian, Christ follower, saved, born again, all those sort of terms that we use. This is what Jesus is saying. If you're saved, this is what it's going to mean. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. This is the first time the word cross is used. They knew what a cross was. They knew who carried a cross. The lowest of the low, the worst of the worst, the heinous criminal carried a cross. Whoa, this got real. Why did he introduce a cross? Yeah, we'll follow you if you're going to be 
persecuted, we can follow you. But then he mentions a cross, a torture device, an execution device. Whoever would follow me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For the one who is trying to save his life, maybe like Peter was doing, the one who wants to sort of ride this popular Jesus into the future, the one who's trying to preserve his ambition, preserve his status, elevate his life, elevate his life, the one who is trying to save his life will ultimately forfeit his soul. But you say, wait, I prayed a prayer when I was eight years old. I was baptized. I walked an aisle. I raised my hand at a youth camp. Doesn't that mean that my soul is secure? And once I prayed the magic prayer, am I always saved? Saved means denying yourself, taking up a cross, and following Jesus. Not preserving your life, but losing your life for his sake. You probably saw the video this week of Botham's brother uh, as the sentencing trial took place for Amber Geiger, uh, the white police officer who entered Botham's apartment mistakenly, thought he was an intruder, and shot and killed him. There's so many layers that uh, how this is affecting our culture, and I, I don't mean to dismiss all of the important cultural and racial tensions. We can tease all that out, and I want to at some point. But what I can say is that when his brother sat on the stand, having experienced this sort of great suffering and difficulty and pain uh, over the loss of his brother, who by all accounts loved the Lord, having experienced this sort of suffering, followed Jesus through that suffering and a great war within his own soul, tried to weigh out these issues of justice, these issues of racism, these issues, all these issues, and came to one moment on a stand in a victim sort of um, testimony where he had the microphone and could have said anything. I couldn't help but think of this Luke 24. I will bring you before rulers and magistrates and kings. And don't worry beforehand what you'll say. I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. What you saw in that courtroom was a move of the Holy Spirit in ways that no one could resist it or contradict that God did something incredible in that moment. But he wouldn't have chosen this sort of path of suffering for the glory of God. But this is the path that Jesus led him down as a follower of Christ. He suffered, but he gave this beautiful testimony of, I don't want any harm for you. I speak for myself and I speak forgiveness over you. And I plead with you to come to Christ. Just raise your hand if you saw the video this week. Just a handful of you, maybe half. If you didn't see it, You need to go look at it. Despite all the real issues our culture faces with racism and with all the issues that are happening, I'm not trying to minimize any of that. Like I said, I want to have those conversations. But in that moment, you witnessed this denial of self, taking up a cross and following Jesus and the power of the gospel applied in life.
He could have preserved his life, this brother. He could have screamed for justice on the deserving offender. But instead he gave grace and mercy and forgiveness. This is the power of the gospel. And this is someone who will not forfeit their soul, but have chosen to lay down their arms, their righteous arms, right? He had a reason to be angry. It's just a beautiful picture of the gospel applied. There's more to say about this passage. And we, I may come back to 34 to 38 next week. But for today, I want you to evaluate, how do I see Jesus? How do I see Jesus? Do I, am I a follower of Jesus? Or do I just kind of like miracle Jesus that gives me goosebumps when I sing? Am I just sort of on this surface level of I want Jesus to do a miracle in my life and provide me with my American dream? Am I trying to take Jesus and make him not a suffering Messiah? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Do I like that Jesus who calls me to deny myself and to take up a cross and follow him? Because that's what it means to be a Christ follower. Do I come to him in repentance? Do I come to him in humility and brokenness and confession? Or do I just kind of want the American dream Jesus? Who's, you know, in my paintings, he's white. (laughs) And he's got this sort of clean beard. And he does, puts his hands on people and just makes them amazing. Touches your life and you're healthy and wealthy and prosperous. Do I kind of like that Jesus? Or am I willing to follow a brown Jesus born in the Middle East In the nation of Israel, a Jewish Jesus who suffered and calls me sort of down this path of humility and obedience and brokenness and suffering for his glory so as not to forfeit my soul. Are you willing to follow that Jesus? Or are you still clinging to American dream Jesus? We'll get into this next week. I I didn't do it justice. We'll come back to 34 through 38. And we'll cover this sort of section. But today it's enough to ask, who are you following? In John 6.66, after a similar word, he said, at that point, many of his disciples no longer followed him, but they turned away and said, this is not the Messiah we wanted. Lord Jesus, help us not to pick and choose the Messiah that we want. Help us to receive you as those who see you clearly and fully. Help us to follow you, even if it means suffering and even if it means difficulty and even if it means pain and even if it means denying ourselves. Help us just to follow you fully and completely. I pray you'd forgive us when we, like Peter, pull you aside and rebuke you and try to apply you to our plan and our path and our will. I pray that we would sincerely follow you one step at a time by faith though it leads down a difficult road would you give us the grace and strength to take up our cross put it on our back and step by step follow you to the path of Calvary give us the grace and strength to follow you well 
so that at the end of our lives we can say with Paul that I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race. And there is laid up before me a crown of righteousness, not of my own, but a crown that you will award to me on that day. Let us be good followers. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.